From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. I hope you had a tremendous weekend. Welcome to Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is back at home and in the house ready to take your questions. If you'd like to be part of the program, grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and uh, and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio. How are you? Aforementioned, yes. <laughs> so we're going to go, I think, here, uh, break from our normal pattern of taking emails at the top of the show. Dave in Cincinnati, Ohio, has held on the oh, line. Okay. And uh, from the previous program, listening on Sacred Heart Radio, and I don't want Dave to have to wait any longer. Dave, you're on with Father Tregilio. Thanks for the uh, skipping the emails. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is, what is liberation theology? Because I heard that our Pope, that's uh, his theology. Uh, I, I, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I like to make distinctions because that was what St. Thomas Aquinas often said. Never deny, seldom affirm, always distinguish. <laughs> um, liberation theology, there are different flavors and brands of it. Uh, there's a very bad brand, which is uh, communistic. It's called Marxist liberation theology. It's condemned by the church. It's this belief that um, only by overthrowing governments and turning over everything that you own to the government, as you would in, a, in, a, in communism, um, it's the only way for salvation. And the church certainly condemns that. Uh, there is a form of liberation theology which is more spiritual uh, that is um, permitted by the church in which one sees the plight of those who are being persecuted. Obviously, we have people uh, throughout the world in different totalitarian governments and uh, their freedoms are being uh, denied to them. Uh, We see this in in communist China. We see this in um, other parts of the world. Um, So certainly praying for, working towards uh, their liberation in the sense that they have the freedoms that are guaranteed to them by their nature because we receive our rights from God, uh, not from the government. The problem is that we had a period of time, I I would say, (laughs) excuse me, in the 80s, 1980s, where a form of liberation theology was rampant, especially in Central and South America. And Pope John Paul the Great, St. John Paul, 
when he was visiting in certain parts of uh, of Central and, and South America, rebuked uh, some priests. Uh, there was Ernesto Cardinal, there some other fellows who actually uh, held political office, and they were promoting this idea that through Marxist governments or through violent overthrow of the government, that one, uh, you know, that's where the church should be, and the church stays out of politics. That's the realm of the secular. And yet at the same time, the church is there to um, reprimand the government when it's denying rights to the church or to individuals. So I, I know Pope Francis because he was um, born and raised in <coughs> Argentina, which is the very um, um, end there of South America. Uh, he was certainly exposed to it. Um, I don't think he advocates, I know he doesn't advocate the kind that's uh, totally condemned by the church. Um, liberation theology itself, because it's so amorphous and can be distorted, it's one that is not the most prudent. Certainly Pope Francis is not saying that we must embrace any form of liberation theology. Uh, just that the problem is that there's very few cases where <coughs> it has been so successful. God bless you, Dave. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We've got an email from Walter, and he wants to know, uh, what is the difference between Christian Pentecost, Jewish Pentecost, and the New Pentecost? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever heard of Jewish Pentecost. Well, there's the, there's the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which uh, uh, we the, the Christians sort of appropriated. Uh, it, it, it's focused on the 50 days. Um, it's certainly distinctly different than Christian Pentecost, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room 50 days uh, after Easter, 10 days after Jesus' ascension. Uh, the, the new Pentecost is uh, this um, sort of spiritual movement to uh, reawaken people to the working of the Holy Spirit. And we had, um, certainly in the non-Catholic realm, the Pentecostal movement, where in um, Protestant Christianity you have, what, you have the actual naming of the Pentecostal church. Within Catholicism, Catholic Christianity... There's been a, uh, a new Pentecost in the sense that uh, since the Vatican Council, we're being reminded that the Holy Spirit is as much a part of the Holy Trinity as is God the Father and God the Son. So God the Holy Spirit should not ever be eclipsed or overlooked. And certainly the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit that we receive first at baptism and then reconfirmed at confirmation, are certainly part of parcel of, of our Catholic faith. I think, um, you know, sometimes people only restrict it in their minds to uh, charismatic uh, spirituality, and that's certainly not the intent. Um, but, you know, overall, a broader uh, exposure shows you that we're, we're living in, in a, a, a Pentecost movement or era because the Holy Spirit, you know, God the Father created, God the Son uh, redeemed and God the Holy Spirit sanctifies. So we're living with the Holy Spirit, but you can't separate the person of the Trinity. So wherever one is, all three are present. Um, in the 
Jewish cust or tradition, the festival of weeks, um, uh, the 50th day, uh, is completely separate from uh, the Christian idea. So when you hear that, those three, uh, you want to make those proper distinctions. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Angelica asks, is having Masses said for the dead helpful to them if they're in purgatory? How does that work? Oh, absolutely. That is the best thing that can be done for the souls of purgatory. Any and all prayers are efficacious. We just don't know to what degree. Having a Mass said for a loved one or a friend, uh, anyone who's deceased, is the best thing because that's the perfect prayer, the Holy Mass, because it, uh, it, it comes from Christ himself. It is the offering of the Son to the Father on behalf of us. And so we as Catholics have this wonderful tradition of having Masses offered for the deceased. In fact, in many parishes when you look at the bulletin and they have the list of the mass intentions you'll see names listed and those are typically deceased souls for whom the mass is being offered unfortunately some of my colleagues canonize people at their funerals and declare in a sense that they're in heaven we don't know if someone is in heaven unless the holy father solemnly canonizes them so Praying for the dead, which you know we see in the Book of Maccabees, it's certainly a Catholic practice. It was defined uh, at Trent, and it's in the Catechism. That's something that we should always do, because if a person is already in heaven, those uh, benefits are not wasted. It goes to the treasury of merit, and the church can apply them to someone else. But if our loved one is still in purgatory, certainly our private prayers are helpful, but all the more having a Mass offered for them. So I encourage everybody to have Masses said for the dead, especially on the anniversary of their death, on their birthday, uh, frequently during the year. Just don't presume they went straight up because maybe you know, they're on that detour path and they need that uh, extra help. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line, Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you enjoy EWTN Bookmark Brief with Doug Keck, you can receive e weekly emails, including a short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe, and you may find Father Trujillo and Father Ken Briganti in your email box one day talking about Catholicism for dummies. <laughs> 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to the great state of Ohio. James is listening at EWTN.com. James, you are on with Father Trujillo. Um, Father, I normally have my confessions after Mass because um, five of the six days that they have, a, the priest gives, I, I, I asked before Mass if I could have confession after Mass. And the priest says yes, and, but says even if it's a serious sin, or at least I think it's a serious sin, he says I could have communion if I have confession right after uh, the Mass. Is that uh, plausible? I mean, I, I've i had about three different priests volunteer this. I didn't ask them. They uh, said that, uh, that they'll hear my confession after Mass, but, to, but not to skip communion. Um, is... Yeah, um, that's not correct completely because if you, anyone is conscious of a mortal sin since the last confession and mortal sin requires three things one grave matter full consent of the will and sufficient knowledge if you are aware and are guilty of mortal sin you you must go to confession before you can receive communion because if you receive communion in the state of mortal sin that is considered sacrilegious now if someone's in venial sin they can go to communion because you know, blessing yourself with holy water remits uh, venial sin. Going to communion remits venial sin. But mortal sin, you know, the very word we use, mortal means one, you know, you're dead in the life of grace. You need, it's almost, the parallel would be, um, you know, no one could physically eat uh, if they're dead. You know, you'd have to zap somebody with those uh, defibrillator paddles to get them back to life because if you try to feed a, a, a dead person, it's not going to do anything. So the only time that someone is advised that they could go to communion uh, prior to confession uh, if they are in the state of sin uh, would be an, um, like the only case I could think of is if, you know, God forbid a priest is aware that he has mortal sin, he needs to go to confession, but he also needs to say mass for the people. So he commits another sin of sacrilege, but in that case, you know, he can't say to the people, no Mass today, because they need Mass. And for him to complete the Mass, he needs to receive communion. But other than that, um, you know, I would not see any case where someone should be advised if they know. If there's any doubt, the benefit of the doubt goes to the penitent. But if you're fully conscious and you're convinced, you're certain you're in the state of mortal sin, go to confession, and if he says after Mass, go after Mass, but... Don't receive communion until after you've gotten, had your sins uh, absolved. God bless you, James. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Dan is in the Commonwealth of Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dan, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hi, Father Tregilio. Hi. Um, Mike, hi. Um, I'm I. I've been Protestant all my life, and and I'm thinking cons- 
uh, seriously about converting to Catholicism. Great. And um, I, I, um, thank you. And I've been, I've been, I've been wondering. Um, I know, I know, in the Protestant Bible, there's there's only uh, sixty six by uh, sixty six books. Where in the uh, uh, Catholic Bible, there's seventy three. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, okay. Where where in the uh, where in the Bible is is purgatory defined and is it mostly in the Old Testament or the New Testament or both? Okay, great question, and I'm certainly I'm going to be praying for you myself that you come into full communion with the Catholic Church because that that would be great. We want you to we want you in because then you receive the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. Purgatory is not limited to, but it's uh, the word doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture, but the word Bible doesn't fall anywhere in the Bible either. Uh, it's something that we put on the outside of it. Uh, it's what the church calls that book of sacred scripture. So if the word Bible's not in the Bible, we shouldn't get bent out that the word purgatory's not in there. But the concept of purgatory, it's clearly in the book of Maccabees, which is part of those seven books that Martin Luther removed from uh, the Old Testament. Because as you rightfully point out, in the typical Protestant Bible, uh, you have only uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, and the extra books are part of what we call the Duro Canon uh, in the Catholic tradition, or sometimes you see in a Protestant Bible, it says, with Apocrypha. Uh, we in the Catholic Church don't consider that Apocrypha. We never did. Um, and for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, that was part of the Bible. It's, it's in the Gutenberg Bible, you know, the first one made with, with a printing press. Um, it was Martin Luther who took those books out. In the book of Maccabees, you have very clear where they prayed for the dead, the brave soldiers who fought for the Hebrew religion, but when they, uh, after they'd fallen in battle, they found on their bodies little lucky charms and amulets. And so because they died for the faith, they wanted to pray for them, but they were already dead. And so if you either go right to heaven or right to hell, you don't need prayers in heaven, and prayers won't help you in hell. So the fact that you, they did pray for the dead means there must be some middle place where the dead souls would go in preparation for heaven, and that was the custom, uh, certainly, that Christianity embraced. And we see then allusions uh, in the New Testament, um, uh, like in the book of Revelation, nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Um, this idea of cleansing, purgation, uh, we have the white-robed martyrs uh, who are, you know, purified in in the in the blood of the Lamb. Purgatory is not hell with parole. Purgatory, from the word purgatus, means to be cleansed, and so the fires of purgatory are fires of cleansing, like gold that's purified by fire. When you dig up gold in the ground, it has impurities, and so they burn it off. So in purgatory, all our attachment to sins are removed. The persons in purgatory are going to go to heaven, for sure. It's just that they need and they want uh, to be cleansed. In the same way, if you were invited to somebody's house for dinner, and this is a person of great importance and uh, honor and privilege, 
you wash your you wash up you know you you clean yourself up you might even get a haircut or a, you know new suit or whatever because you're going it's the person that you're going to honor by you going to them and in the same way if we're going to go to heaven we want to be at look our best so the word purgatory you're not going to find but you're going to find the concept of after death this state of cleansing this purification and that's what the church uh, has consistently taught and Dan, I'll give you one other resource. If uh, if you're on the internet, if you go to BibleChristianSociety.com, that's all one word, BibleChristianSociety.com, that's the website of our friend John Martinoni. And he, uh, Father Tregilio, only has a couple minutes to try to answer your question here. But there are a bunch of free talks, MP3 downloads, on that website. And one of them is called Mary and the Bible. And about the last seven or eight minutes of that talk is an explanation of the principles in the Bible that support purgatory. So you may find that helpful as well. Thanks so much for the phone call. We had next to the Republic of Texas, Mary's a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Mary, you are on with Father Tregilio. Well, good afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me, gentlemen. I'm going to make this quick because I'm in the car and I've gotten to the Ford dealership where I need to get out. <laughs> so, question is, I heard on another show, and I don't remember exactly who it was, but they were talking about somebody's father dying and the person was upset. And the um, radio person said, um, well, don't worry, because Mother Mary is there at death. And I thought, well, now, wait a minute. Does that give Mary the same attributes as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Is she omnipresent? Is she omnipotent? You know, all those omnis that are with the Trinity. Father John, so is Mary the fourth person of the Blessed <laughs> Trinity? Uh, no, quadrinity and, <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. No, but I I understand where she's coming from. Uh, Mary and the saints are not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. But because they're in the presence of God, and God is everywhere, then everywhere God is, in a sense, mystically, all those in His presence are with Him. We just would not use the the term omnipresent. God is omnipresent because he's keeping everything in existence. This is divine providence. But because the soul is immaterial, we can't say, well, there some place or somewhere. Uh, it's not to the resurrection of the body that you're actually going to take up some physical space. So anywhere God is, there's would also be those who are united, connected with him. And so in a mystical way, we could say, yes, Mary and the saints are everywhere God is. But they're not there by their own power. Only God, who is uh, the supreme being, who is uh, Enzanse, existence itself, he must be everywhere because where he's not, there's no existence. God bless you, Mary. We appreciate the phone call, and we will pray for you and your car. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we would still love to hear from you. Your number is 
1-800-227-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 and if you'd prefer, you can always send us an email. We'd be happy to receive your email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. We head now to the great state of California. Jimmy is a first-time caller watching us on YouTube today. Jimmy, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Terrific, thanks. All right, so my question is, uh, me and my wife, we are coming to the Catholic Church. We have fallen so much in love with Mother Church. Um, We also understand we're no longer invincibly ignorant. I know we're catechumens. My question for you today is, I know what constitutes mortal sin. So if we are in a state of mortal sin, does the Church uh, teach that we have to wait until next Easter Vigil to receive the Sacrament of Confession, or do we believe... The church does the church believe that God, uh, through His grace, cooperates with us until we can receive the sacrament? Yes, that's an excellent question. And because you're in the the, the uh, catechumen program or stage, um, Holy Mother Church wants you to wait until uh, whenever the the parish or the diocese offers the sacrament. So, if God forbid something should happen. Like what the nuns told me when I was in Catholic grade school, you know, they said, always be careful because a truck might run you over in the middle of the street and should always be in the state of grace. Um, because you're coming into the church and you did, you're not, uh, you were not under the same obligations as uh, a full, fully um, initiated Catholics. For, for instance, holy days, you were never uh, obligated to attend as, as a Protestant Christian. So that's something you don't, you're not going to have to confess all the uh, Sundays you didn't go to Mass or Holy Days because you weren't obligated to go to Mass. You weren't a Catholic Christian yet. Um, but sins that you you are conscious of, mortal sins where you brought, broke one of the commandments, it was grave matter, you had full consent and full knowledge. Um, you can go to confession if, you know, uh, I've heard it considered someone's going to have surgery, uh, they want to go to confession, they want to receive the sacrament of the sick, um, they're catechumens. They're, they have not been brought into full communion with the church yet. Um, certainly, that's a good reason to be prepared um, for uh, if something, God forbid, would happen. But also for the strength of, of those sacraments. But if, uh, normally speaking, you're, you're in good health and uh, wait for the time, if something were to happen to you, God's mercy would take care of you. So it's not like you're under some umbrella of, of doom and gloom and you have to worry that's why um, you know we want people to take advantage as soon as they can but if at any time you feel you know spiritually you you need to move it up uh, speak to the priest to see if uh, they can um, 
move the process up a little bit. But I know it's important for the catechetical phase to take place so that people realize all the parts and understanding of what the sacraments are as well as the theological distinctions. Just just out of curiosity, Jimmy, why did you all not enter the church this just this past Easter vigil here recently? Okay, so uh, I actually got a, some would consider a pretty powerful testimony. It was for me affirming a friend as a, a friend who's a Catholic at my work as a Christian. It took, took a couple of weeks for me to affirm him as a Christian. And uh, he he uh, he challenged me to look into history and stuff. I thought I was smart because I was a Calvinist Protestant. I thought I knew everything. Well, it turns out I didn't really know much. Um, so when I looked into the history of things and the fact that the early church fathers believed in the real presence of the Eucharist, I mean, that's really what did it for me. Um, now, I have received the sacrament of baptism, uh, my mother having baptized as an infant. My wife, on the other hand, has not been baptized yet. So. Okay. Very good, very good, and so and she won't she won't need to go to confession because her baptism will wash away everything. We actually came into the came into the Catholicism. Uh, well, she converted on the feast day of Saint Thomas Aquinas, actually. Oh, okay. So you're still waiting to come fully in, right? Sir, you you you're still haven't been received fully into the Catholic Church, though, right? No, not as of yet. Right now we're going through late RCIA. Okay. Okay. That I understand. Yeah, very yeah. good, very good. You know, and, and Father, you said that, that they're not under some umbrella of doom, and yeah. quite quite the contrary, they're under a, a pretty safe umbrella of God's grace if, they're, That's if right. their motives yeah. are pure, right? That's right. So you're, you're, you're in good stead. Uh, you don't need to fear. But like I said, if something were to happen, if you needed surgery or something like that, I've, I've given the sacraments... Uh, anointing of the sick, confirmation, confession, uh, for the first time to somebody before they were having any surgery where they were going to get general anesthesia. Uh, that was my practice as a Catholic chaplain. God bless you, Jimmy. We'll keep you and your wife in our prayers. It's a wonderful testimony. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Chuck is driving through uh, Nebraska, a first-time caller listening on Spirit Catholic I'm Radio. I'm going there this summer. Woohoo, Chuck, you're on with Father John. Hey, Father John, how you doing? Okay. Good, you're coming to Nebraska. Well, it's, it's quite a place. It's I'm a giving night. a retreat to the Lincoln Priest this June. Oh, nice. Yep. So I'm right past Lincoln, almost to Grand Island. I had a question about, um, in the Bible, I was reading, I think maybe three different places, but I think uh, in Matthew, it's talking about uh, remarriage and if, a person remarries uh, someone that had adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Has that been um, spared by the blood of Jesus, or uh, how how does that work? Okay, the the um, the exception that Matthew's talking about, um, where where Jesus is talking about the indissolubility of marriage, where if a man and woman marry for the first time. Uh, that's a bond unto death. The only time that there is an exception would be if it was an unnatural marriage to begin with. And the problem is that sometimes the word is uh, translated as illegal. Uh, it's more unnatural where if, for instance, a, a person married their brother or their sister, that could never be a valid um, a marital bond. 
So if that had happened, or if someone married too close, like a mother or father, brother or sister, a son or daughter, uh, first cousin, you still need a dispensation for first cousins. Um, if it was too close, or in the case that we have today with you know men wanting to marry men or women wanting to marry women, that's an unnatural bond. So that would uh, prevent the sacrament from occurring. Therefore, uh, if they married it civilly for the second time, it would not be considered uh, adultery. Whereas if this is the first time for both persons, both are baptized, this is a sacramental bond. It can only be ended uh, in death. So the so-called loophole that some people claim is there in Scripture, uh, they're taking it out of context. Um, some are trying to say, well, if one person commits adultery, then that means that the, the marriage can end. No, because when they make their vows, for better, for worse, rich report until death do us part. Uh, adultery, while it's serious, it's a grave sin, adultery does not um, nullify a marriage, but the intent to be adulterous prior to and during the marriage would. If someone had no intention of being faithful, that's one of the questions we ask just before we do the vows, do you intend to enter a permanent, faithful, okay, that means permanent, and God-willing, fruitful union? If the person, or both of them, don't intend to have children, or they don't intend this to be permanent, or they don't intend to be faithful, then they're they're creating a, an impediment which would not allow the sacrament to take place. But if that wasn't their intent the day of the wedding, they became unfaithful later on, that's something they're going to have to work out as husband and wife. God bless you, Chuck. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is Joel, a first-time caller in Harrah, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Joel, you're on with Father Trujillo. Good afternoon. I was uh, had a question from uh, a show I was watching where the, they were adamant that um, Judas went directly to hell um, based on his betrayal and his uh, taking his own life. And I thought um, during our current Catholic view of suicide um, and someone taking their own life, is it within the realm of possible, um, theologically, that God's grace and mercy could have been extended to Judas even, um, and that uh, that perhaps he has spent several lifetimes in purgatory, you know, paying a debt for um, doing the things he did. Um, and also, uh, as I was doing a little bit of research, you know, I noticed that Jesus actively told him to go ahead and do what you intend to do. You know, there was there was an active acknowledgement of of what he intended to do. So I just wanted to put that question out there and, and see what y'all had to say about it. Thanks. Okay. Well, heavy hitters here. <laughs> um, the church has never defined uh, dogmatically or doctrinally that any one particular person is in hell. We know for sure Lucifer, the devil, and all the fallen angels are there. We know it's possible for human beings to go there. But even with Judas, because you rightly point out, there's a very, very slim chance he could have repented uh, before he died that God would forgive any sinner. 
Think of the worst, worst, worst human beings who ever lived, who ever walked this earth. No one is beyond God's mercy. So theoretically, it's possible that the worst person who ever walked this earth could uh, be repentant just before they died. And then, of course, that's why purgatory makes sense, because if someone was evil and despicable their whole life, and then at the very end was sorry, truly sorry, we believe God would uh, you know, accept that sorrow, but it wouldn't be fair or just for them just to walk through the pearly gates. They have a lot of you know, attachment to all their evil sins. So if Judas is in hell, uh, it's because he died unrepentantly. We don't know that. Um, now, what you said about, you know, Jesus said, go and do what you must do, uh, it wasn't divine uh, permission for him to go, and because he could have said no at any point. Uh, he already resolved that he was going to do this. He already got his 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus was just saying, get it over with. He wasn't saying to Judas, here's carte blanche, here's a get-out-of-jail-free card, you're in the good. No. He was just telling him to, you know, get on with what, what, what was going to happen. But uh, certainly that's why we, with church, as you point out too, we don't deny Catholic burial to people who commit suicide as we did in the past because now we understand that so many people have clinical depression. A lot of people die, um, you know, through suicide. But, you know, they, there are a lot of emotional, psychological baggage going on. And yet there's still the scenario where you can imagine a terrorist, um, you know, someone in the mob, uh, someone who wants to, you know, uh, for nefarious purposes, wants to avoid justice. They, they take their life and, you know, they have no repentance. They, they're an evil person. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving them the, the second benefit. But, but even there, as a priest, I could not say with any certitude that that person went to hell. It's just that it's possible uh, if someone, you know, is doing this and has no repentance whatsoever. And they're in full, complete control of their faculties. Uh, I know a few priests who, sadly, have taken their lives, but they were plagued with horrible um, clinical depression, and we commend them to the mercy of God. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Chris is in Decatur, Georgia, listening to us on The Quest out of Atlanta. Chris, you are on with Father John. Okay, this is uh, kind of a... I don't mean to be or anything, but this is a question that's always kind of confused me. During the, uh, at the TLM, when the priest is raising the host for consecration and the two altar servers are on either side, why do they lift the tail end of his chasuble as he elevates the host? Do you know, Father? I know there's a, there's a symbolic value. There's also a practical. The symbolic is that they're uniting uh, with this sacrifice because in the, um, in the ordinary form, the, the, the Novus Ordo, uh, we make that explicit at the offertory. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be made acceptable. Um, in the traditional Latin Mass, in the uh, uh, Usus Antiquior, or extraordinary form, the altar service holding up uh, the, the end of the chasuble is symbolic of uniting spiritually with that sacrifice, but also the practical, because many times uh, the, the priest would have a very elaborate lace alb and it could get snagged on things, so that also had that benefit of not catching on anything. 
And I think we had this question on a Wednesday open line, and Father Mitch and I did a little research, and apparently when this first started, the Chasubles were incredibly heavy. <laughs> and it was almost necessary to aid the priest in getting his hands up over his head by helping him to lift the, the actual chasuble that was often, uh, you know, bejeweled and, uh, and other things. So uh, does that help, Chris? Sure does. That helps a lot. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I think a lot of people have had that question, I, I being among them down through the ages. Um, next up is Tracy in Aberdeen, South Dakota, listening to EWTN Radio on Real Presence Radio. Tracy, you're on with Father John. Um, hi, thank you for taking my question. Sure. What? What I was wondering is I am strongly considering converting to your to Catholicism, very interested in it, and the local priest gave me some books to read, among them Rome Street Rome by Scott and Kimberly Hahn, which was excellent, and I came to realize that there is such a thing that the Catholics believe as the perpetual virginity of Mary, and I just cannot wrap my head around that. I think that Matthew 125 totally contradicts that. And if I do not come to believe that, can I still become a Catholic? Do you have? Do I have to believe everything? Uh, yes, you do. But we want you to take as much time as you need. This is not uh, something where we want people to be, um, you know, what we call um, ha uh, half baked. Where, well, you can you can wrestle with that later. No, I would prefer that you, at the time that you become in the full communion that you can say, yes, I can accept what the Church teaches. It doesn't mean I understand with absolute clarity everything that the Church teaches, because even I as a priest, there's things which are mysterious. There's things which maybe even be difficult, but I give the Church the benefit of the doubt because she, she teaches in the name of Christ, he who hears you hears me, and he gave the power to the keys uh, to St. Peter. Now, the perpetual virginity of Mary... Um, that's something which, you know, the church has always taught both in the East and in the West so that, you know, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Byzantine Catholic, Latin Rite Catholics, we've always believed that Mary was a virgin ante, before, inter, during, and postpartum. The alleged brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Greek word that's used in the, in the remember, the Gospels were written in Greek, first, and then translated into Latin, and then later into English, the Greek word that uh, is used, Adelphoi, you're, you're Adelphoi or outside waiting. Adelphoi is a Greek word which can mean any type of relation. We use the word relative. My brother is my relative. My cousin is my relative. We get very specific in our English language. At the time of Jesus, the biblical Greek and the, even the Hebrew was much more fluid. We know this because in the Old Testament, we have the story of Abraham and his nephew Lot. When you read the King James Bible, okay, which is Protestant, in the passage there, it says Abram and his brother Lot. But he's not his brother. Lot is the son of Abram's brother. Abram had a brother named Haran, Haran's son, Lot, 
And the only way you could describe this in ancient Hebrew was to go the long way, say Abraham and his brother's son, or you could use an inclusive word, ach, in Hebrew or in Greek, adelphos. So if Lot can be called the, the uh, brother of Abraham, but he's actually his nephew, then Jesus' cousins could be called brothers and sisters as well. That's how the church understands that. And if Jesus had blood brothers and sisters, where were they on Good Friday? Would they not have been there with Mary? Why would Jesus have to give Mary to St. John for, to be cared for if he had brothers and sisters who could care for her? And certainly, wouldn't they have some role of leadership in the church if they were brethren? So, because we can extenuate that word that's used in that passage, your brothers and sisters, and say, that's an inclusive word in the same way I would say my, my family's out there, my relatives are there. I hope that helps. And Father, what about this uh, business of uh, Joseph not having relations with Mary until she had born a son? Yeah, it's the same way with Jesus being called the firstborn son. Um, it's a title. Uh, Joseph had no relations until, but that doesn't mean he had them afterwards. It was just to make sure that people knew that this was a virgin birth. And so Jesus being called the firstborn doesn't mean that there was a secondborn. It's a title of honor that you give, whether you have one son or if you got a bunch of sons. Joseph was not uh, intimate with Mary before, and we believe not afterwards either. How's that, Tracy? Um, it's still a little murky to me, but let me ask I you, appreciate let me ask you what. Let me ask you one, one question. So suppose I lived next door to you. And every day I went to the end of your driveway and grabbed your mail out of your mailbox and walked it up to your front door. Uh-huh. And I described, or you or someone described after the fact that he retrieved her mail every day until the day he died. Okay. Does that mean that I would have continued to do it after I died? Mm. Well, that's true. I mean, I I get it. I get the Catholic stance. Um, I'm going to have to pray about it. It it kind of reminds me that Jesus didn't turn the water into wine. He turned it into the best grape juice imaginable. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's something we certainly don't believe in, no. (laughs) God bless you, Tracy. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is... uh, Teresa in Detroit, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Teresa, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Thank you for taking my question. But I wanted to mention something that I learned as a uh, former evangelical, and it came back to my Catholic faith, that I learned recently that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli all believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. I found that out from a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, just FYI. So my question is, um, so why didn't Jesus, piggybacking on the story about purgatory, why didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why didn't he say, today you'll be with me in purgatory? Very good question. First of all, um, Jesus, we you know, uh, would not have gone to purgatory. Um, purgatory is in preparation for heaven, and you know this day you'll be with me in paradise does not exclude the fact that the guy could have been in purgatory for an hour or a couple hours. He said this day. He didn't say this very moment. 
So the, the good thief could have gone through some type of purgatory. Purgatory is not chronological, though. We, we talk about it in that way, days and years in purgatory. But purgatory is a state. It's a state of cleansing. Our human minds have to wrap it around somehow so we, we understand it and describe it in terms of chronological uh, time. But it, it's really not that way. So the, the guy could have gone through purgatory or he could have done his purgatory here on earth, as we say. His suffering on the cross, all the pain that he endured, could have expiated all his sins because he made that profession of faith. You know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So we can do our purgatory now or we could do it in the next life. The point is that most of us need some purgatory, but there's also the possibility that some people do go directly to heaven because they live such a good, holy, and virtuous life. But those who do go through purgatory, you know, we don't want to think of it, how many years sentence did they get? Uh, it's not that type of, of, of reality. It's more of a, a state of cleansing. And Anne in the great state of Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask Anne's question for her. She said she heard a priest say that he doesn't need canon law because he has the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit is the one who is uh, guiding the church, and Holy Mother Church came up with canon law, so he's absolutely wrong. I mean, the Holy Spirit did not inspire canon law, that's for sure. These are laws created by churchmen, but just like laws created by secular authority are valid, they need to be obeyed. You know, you have to obey the civil laws. We have to obey canon law. It's not the same as divine law or moral law. But canon law, the Holy Spirit is guiding us to do what's right. So protecting people's rights in the eyes of the church are a good thing. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Bendica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for helping us kick off another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Join us tomorrow. Father Wade Menezes will be in the house speaking about faith, family, and fellowship. Father Mitch on Wednesday talking church teaching, ancient languages, and the like. Dominican Father Brian Milady on Thursday and our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan wraps things up on Friday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.